Okay, if you'll uh, take your Bible and open up to Luke chapter 4, if you haven't already. Uh, We're going to be looking together today at Luke chapter 4, verses 14 uh, through 44. We're actually going to be looking at this for the next couple weeks. It's going to take us a while, and today is going to be like a little introduction. Um, We're going to just get started. But I, I'm, I'm excited, and one reason I'm excited about uh, the book of Luke just in general, actually, is because uh, we need a hero. And it's important to understand, I think, as we look at the gospel of Luke, that this is a book about a hero. And I, I know that hero maybe sounds like too small a word because we use that uh, in different settings like movies and, and books and things. Uh, But we also use it in real situations, like when someone comes in and rescues someone from a desperate situation, they're a hero. And if there's anything the past couple of years have made clear with COVID, and even now with uh, just all the the conflict in, in the world, and in some of our lives as well, the situations that come up that we can't fix, with all that brokenness, it should be real obvious to all of us that there are problems in our world that are way beyond our ability to solve, even at our best, with all our knowledge. If we're looking at things realistically, honestly, we are in an absolutely desperate situation as humans. And sometimes we can find ways to try to ignore it. Uh, Whole cultures are based on that, trying to ignore the obvious for a while at least. But At some point or another, life catches up with you, and it becomes impossible to ignore. We need a hero, and Jesus is that hero. That's what makes Luke exciting. Luke is like, Jesus is that hero. You remember, maybe, that's made clear in chapters 1 and 2 as Luke introduces Jesus. The big idea and words that he uses over and over to describe what's happening and what God's doing have to do with salvation. Mary says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Zechariah says, God has raised up a horn of salvation. The angels say, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. An old man named Simeon, whom Luke makes clear is a prophet, looks at the baby Jesus, and he says to God, my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is about salvation. The gospel is is about salvation. Now, of course, salvation itself is a big word, and it could mean a bunch of different things, honestly. And so what kind of salvation are we talking about? And Luke, in his opening chapters, is very intentional about tying this salvation back to this salvation that the Old Testament prophets promised. We don't just get to make up the salvation that Jesus came to bring. God spent thousands of years getting us ready to understand that, and he revealed all of that in the Old Testament. And to make it kind of quick, to give you the cliff notes, we're talking about a complete salvation. This is not just like a Band-Aid salvation. This is not just like a temporary fix salvation. This is a complete salvation, a reversal of how things are socially, politically, economically, physically, and of course, spiritually. At the very beginning of this book, That's what Luke is claiming Jesus is coming to do. We need somebody to fix the problems in politics. We need someone 
to fix the problems in society. We need someone to fix the problems in our economies. We need someone to fix all of our problems physically and then spiritually. And Luke is pointing at Jesus and saying, he's the one. He's the one. He is that hero. Which I suppose uh, doesn't surprise us that much sitting here at church. We're kind of like, okay, I, I, I know that. But to a lot of people hearing that for the first time, I would guess that maybe seems a little bit questionable. Jesus is that hero. Even to the people back in Luke's day, actually, if you compare and contrast Jesus with, say, Caesar, who is really powerful? I mean, we hear all these things, and we see all this stuff going on around Jesus' birth in Luke 1 and 2, but let's get real. You fast forward 30 years or so, we're only in the opening chapters in our study here, but you fast forward 30 years or so from Jesus' birth, and not much has happened. And so we're looking at Jesus, and, and he's what? He's a Jewish carpenter, which means we're talking about a Jewish carpenter as the solution to all the problems in the world. And I haven't even gotten to the end of the story yet where he's crucified. So you can imagine someone saying, I think, Luke, really? And in chapter 3, Luke's like, really, really? And first of all, he brings up a proof that Jesus is the one who's going to fulfill the promises of the, that the Old Testament makes about salvation. And the way he does that is he shows us that if you look back at the Old Testament, you'll find there is a specific promise about someone who would come right before God acts to bring salvation through the Messiah. And the Old Testament even tells us where that person is going to show up and what they're going to say and what's going to happen when he says all that. And Luke's like history, you know, because that is what happened with John the Baptist. John the Baptist clearly was that prophet. And his ministry was so powerful, in fact, that some people thought he was the Messiah, and yet John the Baptist said, no, he wasn't. And then he went on and identified Jesus as the promised Savior, which is, which is great, right? Which is exciting. We have a, a testimony. We have a, a witness. But, of course, we keep reading, and what happens? John the Baptist is thrown in prison. So again, we need an explanation. We're, we're not back to where we started exactly, but we need an explanation. It's kind of like we need an assurance. Because even though what was happening with the John the Baptist seems pretty obvious, it still doesn't quite go the way we would think. And so we need an assurance that we're understanding this right, a confirmation. And so the next thing Luke shows us is what happened as Jesus was baptized. And what happened is that God spoke and identified Jesus very clearly as the hero he had promised. Specifically, you remember, he, he ripped open the sky somehow. He made himself evident and said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Which was not just a nice thing for God to say about Jesus, actually. It's also an explanation of Jesus. Jesus is God's beloved son, which is, is helpful, but again, like the word salvation is a really big term, son of God. 
And it can have different nuances, actually, even in the Bible. And so we need some help understanding what Luke is wanting us to be thinking about when we think about Jesus being the Son of God. And so what he does is he gives us this genealogy, Luke chapter 3, 23 to 38. And this genealogy isn't random. And where it's located isn't random either because Luke could have placed it at the beginning. You know, that's where you would have expected a genealogy. But it's like Luke saves it for a purpose because he wants to guide us where our minds need to be going when we think about what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God here. We need to think about Jesus being like a second Adam. So God calls Jesus his beloved son at his baptism, and then right after that, Luke gives a genealogy that ends, the son of Enos, who was the son of Seth, who was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. And I put the who was there so you can get the idea, but it's like we're being given a picture to help us understand the kind of hero Jesus is going to be. There's actually a couple pictures, but one that's important for us to think back to is Adam. Jesus is going to fulfill the Old Testament. We know that. Jesus is going to provide salvation, and we know that for sure because God says Jesus is the Son of God. But what's that mean exactly? Luke's like, think Adam, because Adam was a son of God. But again, how does that help us? It helps us because if you remember Adam, Adam's life was bigger than just Adam. It was bigger for one thing, first of all, because God gave Adam this huge task to do. He was supposed to rule over the entire world as God's chosen representative. That was the plan, the blueprint for the world. God was going to rule this world through a man, Adam. And then second, you remember, Adam's life was bigger than just Adam because he was serving in that position as a representative of the whole human race. And of course, we all know what happened. He failed. He failed big time, and we're experiencing the consequences now. But that's why we're talking Jesus here in Luke. That's part of what makes him exciting, because the story is not over. When God identifies Jesus as the Son of God here, and Luke makes the connection back to Adam, he's helping us understand the salvation that Jesus is going to bring, the kind of hero that Jesus is going to be. We're thinking, one, about a king, a man who's going to rule over this world on God's behalf, and we're thinking, two, about someone whose life impacted others by serving as their representative. And so the question now again is, how is he going to do that exactly? And how can we know for sure that Jesus it really is going to be able to do all that? Because we're talking about God accomplishing a total reboot of the world, basically, when we talk about salvation, and doing it through one man. So this is a very big thing we're talking about when we say Jesus is the Son of God and the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, especially given the way sin has broken this world, because we're not in the garden anymore, you know, like with the first Adam. And so it's harder. The second Adam's job is a lot harder, what we need him to do, because he's got all these problems now that he's got to solve. And so we're looking at Jesus and asking again, how is he going to solve all these problems? And how can we really know that he's able to solve them? Which is where Luke 4 comes in. 
because we've got ideas as humans about how God should work in this world and even about how we think it should look. We have deeply held assumptions about how a total, complete salvation should be accomplished. And one thing verses 1 through 13 does is start making us question some of our expectations and assumptions about how those questions should be answered. Because Luke tells us the first thing that God does is take Jesus into the wilderness. Verse 1, Luke 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, which represents basically a place of suffering and a time of testing. And you see how it's really clear God takes them there. Luke's like, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, and he led him there to be tested by the devil, which seems like a strange place for God to take his beloved son, if you think about it. And the devil makes it clear that he thinks it's strange as well. In fact, he comes to Jesus and says, basically, you know what? This is not how it's supposed to work for the Son of God. That is the devil's basic temptation. And he offers Jesus a different version of sonship, essentially. You have to understand, that is the temptation of Jesus. The devil is not questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God. He's questioning how. It's as if he's looking at, Jesus, at God leading Jesus into the wilderness, into a place of suffering, and saying, no, being the son of God is not supposed to involve suffering. Turn that stone into bread. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world without a cross. You get anywhere near pain, and the angels should be showing up and, and stopping that from happening. In other words, this is how it's supposed to work. It's not supposed to be suffering. It's only supposed to be glory. Now, now. And I don't want to preach the temptation of Jesus all over again, but it's actually kind of ironic when you look closely at what the devil says to Jesus because Jesus is suffering and the devil's offering him relief. And Jesus is humbled and the devil's offering him glory. And Jesus is the Messiah, and the devil's offering him a plan that will fast forward that and make it obvious to absolutely everyone. You jump off the roof of the temple, the angels save you. That's a fulfillment of Psalm 91. Everyone knows you're the Messiah. Here we go. And yet we look at verses 1 through 13, and Jesus flat out rejects that. He rejects all of that. And that was kind of the point, right? It's, it's a test. This is a test. This is a temptation from the devil. And so this passage at the beginning of Luke 4 is like a big old no to that idea of what it means to be the son of God. It's like it presents us a version of being the son of God. And Jesus says, no, that's not the right version. Which should cause us to start asking some questions. It's almost like a pause as we're reading this story. Because yes, Jesus is a hero. That's what Luke told us. And he's coming to provide this great salvation. Luke is very clear. He is the son of God. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise. But Luke is like, wait, 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 wait for a minute. Because how it is going to go and how he provides that salvation is not going to be exactly the way we might initially think. And now we're almost here to, to our passage. But I told you this was like an introduction. 
Because Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 44, is kind of like an explanation, especially verses 14 through 30. And the thing I'm really wanting you to see is that we need an explanation. Because the devil's perspective actually kind of makes a little sense to a lot of people. Because here Luke tells us we're looking for the person who's going to be the world's greatest hero, right? And we're looking for the person who's going to reverse the curse. And we're looking for someone who's supposed to establish the kingdom of God. And so you would think, of course, that person, the son of God, he comes into the world and his ministry begins and it should be glory, glory, glory now, which Jesus rejects. He rejects that basically because it's, it's not submitting to the will of God. I mean, verses 1 through 13, you read the temptation of Jesus, and you, you may not understand the first time you read it why the devil is, is wrong, but it's clear that Jesus is saying the devil is wrong. The devil's idea of the Son of God is wrong. And when we took a, a few weeks to look at Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil because it was so deep, but essentially what we are seeing Luke make very obvious is that Jesus is going to be presenting to us an idea of what it means to be the son of God and what God is doing that is very different than most of our preconceptions. So where in the wilderness, the devil is saying, this is what you're supposed to do. Use your power to get what you want. Take hold of the kingdom of the world right now and do it without suffering. And on top of that, the devil actually says, that's biblical. You should do that because I have a Bible verse to prove it. And Jesus is very clearly saying in his response, no, I reject all that. The way you're interpreting scripture is not the way God does. And so I reject your interpretation because my job is to put God's will and God's priorities first. And God has a different plan for me as his son right now. Which is what? That's, that's the question, right? Which is what? We need an explanation. If that's not how being the son of God is going to work, how is it going to work? And Luke's like, Verse 14 and following. Okay, now you're ready. You're ready. Let's listen to Jesus. And I told you this is just an introduction, right? This sermon. This sermon is just an introduction to this chapter. So we're not going to get as deep into this passage today as we are the next few weeks. You can come back next week, actually, and we're going to look carefully at the characteristics of Jesus' message. But today, I want to get you ready by making three observations that I think will help you as we do. And, and the first is that if you're going to understand how God is accomplishing salvation through Jesus and fulfilling the Old Testament, you need to let Jesus explain it. After telling us how Jesus is not going to fulfill his ministry, Luke starts describing how he is going to instead. Uh, verses 14 to 42 is a description of how Jesus went about ministry, basically. And Luke starts off with a, a, a very short statement that summarizes the heart of Jesus' ministry in verses 14 and 15. You might say this is like a, a chapter heading. And we see it was one of spirit-filled, spirit-empowered preaching. God had one son, someone said, and he was a preacher. Luke writes, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, 
being glorified by all. And now, of course, when we read that, it, it sounds like, at, at first at least, that Luke is describing something that happened immediately after Jesus came back from being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. But we know from the Gospel of John that there was some time in between verse 13 and verse 14. In, in the white space there, there was at least eight months or longer of Jesus ministering primarily in the southern part of Israel, uh, the area surrounding Jerusalem, a place called Judea. And his ministry there had been very dramatic and, and very successful, really. If you remember, it started with him turning the water into wine at a wedding in Cana. Apparently after Jesus' baptism, he had gone back home and at some point attended a wedding with his mother in Cana, which was in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, just a short walk away from Nazareth. After which, John tells us he and his mother and brothers and a few of his followers went up to Capernaum, which was a town by the Sea of Galilee, and stayed there for a few days, after which they all went down to Jerusalem for the Passover, which actually becomes quite the scene when Jesus gets there because he sees people trying to make money off of uh, those who are coming to worship God, and he becomes angry, and he overturns their tables. And that's how his public ministry basically begins, Jesus at the temple fighting people using religion for personal gain. And yet, at the same time, he must have been doing some other signs while he was there in Jerusalem, not just overturning tables, and those signs aren't recorded for us, but they were causing an effect because John says that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And from there on in John, we see more and more interest developing in Jesus, reaching all levels of society, and it starts drawing the attention of the religious leadership, and not in a good way either. And so Jesus decides to go back to Galilee. And as Jesus is going back to Galilee, he passes through the region of Samaria. So you had Judea down there, you might say, Samaria in the middle, and then Galilee. And in Samaria, he stops at a well, and he meets a Samaritan woman. And she comes to faith, and she goes back to her people as a kind of missionary. And there ends up being a, a mini revival in that Samaritan town. After which, finally, Jesus comes home to Galilee. And many of the Galileans were excited to have him come, obviously, because you see how Luke tells us in verses 14 and 15 that when Jesus returned to Galilee, a report went about him went through all the surrounding country. And that word report is, is sometimes translated news. It's where we get our English word for fame. And so, in other words, Jesus was famous, and he was famous for preaching which is what Luke wants us to focus on clearly because he skips all that, what I just told you, and he moves straight from the temptation and all those signs and miracles in Jerusalem to Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry. Look at it. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And we know this is important to Luke because besides what he leaves out, he makes a link here when he talks about returning in the power of the Spirit. If you think back to Jesus' baptism, Luke 3.22, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form. And then the next story, Luke 4.1, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And now this verse, what? Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. In other words, this is Jesus doing exactly what God was leading him to do. And what was God leading Jesus to do? Preach. At the heart of the Christian faith, the gospel is a savior who was a preacher, a man with a message. 
And as we keep reading the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see this is significant by the way Luke places an emphasis on Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry over and over again. In fact, even this chapter, if you were going to ask what's it about, it's about Jesus preaching. We find that in the first story there in 16 through 30, he's teaching, and we read about his teaching again in, in verse 31, and we see him saying in verse 43, I must preach the good news, and the chapter ends, verse 44, you notice it, he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And actually, more than that, if you look at what Jesus says about himself, why he came into the world, he says, verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, for preaching. So clearly, one big thing this chapter wants you to know is that Jesus was a preacher. And I think that's because Luke is stressing at the very beginning, if you're going to understand Jesus and his work, you need someone to explain what's happening. And specifically, that someone is Jesus. And you really, really need to listen to him, which probably seems obvious, I guess, but it's harder than you think. In fact, let me show you something funny. If you turn to Luke 24, this is the the last chapter in the Gospel of Luke. And, and maybe you remember the story because you have a couple of disciples who are on their way to a place called Emmaus after Jesus had been crucified and they're discouraged. And Jesus shows up and he says, why are you discouraged? What's going on? And they say, this is Luke 24, 19. They say, basically, we're discouraged because we were followers of Jesus, of Nazareth. He was a man who, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And so they're saying Jesus was a prophet, and everyone knew he was a prophet. He proved to be a prophet. They're emphasizing what I was emphasizing about Jesus. But then they say, we're discouraged because our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, is it not the third day since these things happened? Which is, is funny. And why is that funny? That's funny because they were saying Jesus was a prophet. And that's actually what Jesus prophesied would happen over and over again, what they just said. And you know what? They even go on to say, some people are telling us he rose from the dead, which again is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And yet, instead of being encouraged by it, they are discouraged, which shows you how blind and deaf we are to what God is doing on our own. And you know what ends up changing all that for them is that Jesus is patient. And he takes them back to the scriptures, and Jesus preaches Jesus to them, and they go away transformed. And that's kind of the big point of the Gospel of Luke. What God is doing through Jesus is so different than what we might naturally expect. And if we just look at it on our own, we're not going to understand it, even with all the signs right in front of us. Jesus could be right in front of us, and we're not going to see him. It's not enough just to, to look at the events and to talk about what happened for us to understand the plan of God. We need to let Jesus explain what it means for him to be the Son of God, how he fulfills the Old Testament, and how God is accomplishing salvation through him. In other words... Jesus has to interpret scripture for us. And in fact, as we keep going, and we're going to keep going someday, especially in the book of Acts, 
we can take it a step further because we're going to see that actually part of how God is accomplishing his work through the Son of God and this salvation I've been describing is through Jesus' preaching. Like even what we're doing right now. Which, of course, if we go back to Luke chapter 4, is probably why Luke begins his description of Jesus' public ministry in verses 16 through 30 by giving us a sample of one of his sermons. The first thing that Luke says is Jesus is a preacher. And then second, he gives us a sample of one of his sermons. And like I said, we're going to look at it more carefully in the next few weeks and specifically at what was so revolutionary about what Jesus said. But the main observation I want us to notice today is that Jesus' message was revolutionary. If you look down at the text, I think the way Luke sets this up is really helpful because as we saw, he begins with this summary statement about Jesus' preaching, which was really positive, verses 14 and 15. In fact, the, the end of verse 15 couldn't say it more positively. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, which is a word the Bible normally reserves for God, glorified. So they're responding to Jesus like they would to God. And yet, if you just look at the heading of the next few verses, what does it say in, in bold print in your Bible? It says, Jesus rejected at Nazareth, which is a shocking thing for him to say. For, for one thing, because everything in the Gospel of Luke so far has been moving along pretty much exactly how you would expect it to. And so we might think at first, this is just going to be a continuation of that success story, especially because Jesus is preaching in his, in his hometown of Nazareth. You see in verse 16 how Luke writes, and he came up to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And really, this would have seemed like the perfect crowd for Jesus to preach to because we don't know much about Nazareth. There's no mention of it in the Old Testament. But from what we can tell, it was a pretty Jewish place. They, they say it actually was an all-Jewish town until the fourth century. And, and in and of itself, that is saying something. Because Galilee, and you're going to have to just focus. You can do it. I know it. It's worth it. Because Galilee, which was the region where Nazareth was, was located, was fairly Gentile or, or non-Jewish. In fact, there are, are places where it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. But what seems to have happened, they say in around the second century before Jesus was even born, there were some Jewish people who were very serious about the land being for Jewish people. If you know what I mean, it's like Israel for the Israelites. And so knowing that there were so many Gentiles in Galilee, they sent Jewish people up from Jerusalem and Judea, which remember was down south, to relocate and settle in different places in Galilee. And apparently one of the places they settled was Nazareth. So in other words, this was like a, a Jewish outpost in the middle of this thoroughly Gentile region. And that's why I think perhaps as, as Jesus came back to Nazareth, and as was his cup, custom, Luke says, he went into the synagogue, it wouldn't have been very surprising if the place itself had been packed. Like everyone was there. There was... No way anyone was staying home. They were all going to be at the synagogue. Hallelujah. And, of course, you, you know a, a synagogue. A synagogue wasn't the, the temple. It wasn't a, a place for sacrifices or anything like that. The synagogues 
purpose was very specific. It existed as a place for Jewish people to come together and hear God's word. And they did it every week. And actually, the service was, was pretty simple. They would begin with, with singing and uh, certain psalms, after which the Shema would be recited, the Jewish creed. And then there would be a long series of blessings and prayers that were spoken. And people would agree with each of those prayers by saying amen. And this could go on a while. There were like 18 different blessings they used. And when all of that was finished, and that was just the lead up, believe it or not, if you think our services were long, that was just the lead up to the high point of the whole service, which was the reading of God's word. That's what everyone was waiting for, where they would have a specially appointed person who would approach what they called the ark. And the ark was basically a container where they kept a scroll containing God's word. And they would bring out the scroll, take it from its protective case, unwind it from the claws that held it. And this was all very solemn. And then they would read from both the law and the prophets. And on any given day of worship, they would have something like seven different portions read from God's law, one after another, and then also from the prophets, after which, we're not done yet, would come the preaching, which is where Jesus came in. Because apparently there was someone who was in, in charge of how the service in the synagogue ran. And so after reading all those scriptures, that person would ask for someone to instruct the audience. And it wasn't unusual if there was a visiting teacher for them to look to him especially, which is why it's not surprising again that at this point, verse 16, we read Jesus stood up. And, and Luke tells us he chose the passage he wanted to preach from, verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, which wouldn't have been easy. Uh, this actually shows how familiar Jesus was with the scriptures. I know sometimes we have a hard time finding a passage in the scripture that we want to talk about, but this was way harder because the scroll that Jesus read was not divided into chapters and verses. In fact, it wasn't even really divided into words. They just placed ancient Hebrew texts, placed one letter next to each other without any spaces or, or punctuation, which meant for Jesus, to find the right place, he must have had an intimate knowledge of, of Hebrew language in general and of Isaiah's prophecy in particular. And the passage that he chose to, to read and preach from was Isaiah chapter 61. Guys, obviously there's noise out there. I'm trying to stay focused. We'll all just try to stay focused, huh? We know it. They were listening to Jesus. I'm sure they had to stay focused. So you definitely need to stay focused. Um, he, he, he chose to read from Isaiah chapter 61, which shouldn't surprise you if you've been studying Luke, because there's been a lot of quoting of Isaiah so far. Gabriel, the angel, quoted Luke. Mary quoted Luke. Zechariah quoted Luke. Simeon quoted Luke. John the Baptist quoted Luke. God the Father quoted Luke. They, Isaiah, excuse me. They all quoted Isaiah. And that's because of how much talking Isaiah does about the Messiah, the promised one, which is what this text, Isaiah 61, is all about. This is a text about the promised Messiah and the salvation he would bring. That's how the original hearers sitting there in that synagogue in Nazareth would have heard it. And I'm sure at first they would have been pretty excited that Jesus chose it. Because there's a lot of rebuking going on in the book of Isaiah, if you know it. There's a lot of rebuking of the nation of Israel. And yet as you get to the end of the book of Isaiah, there are some amazing promises about this great day in the future when Israel is going to repent and God is going to turn everything upside down. 
And in a sense, in Isaiah chapter 61, what's happening is that you have a, a prophecy about someone who's going to be called by God to stand up and say, that great day is here. In fact, it even gets a little better because in the Old Testament, there's this whole idea of jubilee, or as Jesus puts it in verse 19, this special year of the Lord's favor. So in the way that God designed for things to work for the people of Israel, he embedded in the very way they lived this idea of jubilee, a day when things were restored to how they should be. And so one day out of every week, one day out of every seven, there was a day of rest, a jubilee. And then over the course of years, after six years, they would have a year they let the land rest. And then about once every 50 years, they would have a year of jubilee, which as far as was humanly possible, would be a year where everything was returned to the way it should be, like a reset on Israel. Debts were canceled. Slaves were set free. If you were indebted for your land, your land would be returned to you. And so this year of Jubilee was designed to give a glimpse of what God would do when he sent the Messiah. And the passage that Jesus is reading from in Isaiah is a passage about this great jubilee to end all jubilees, where God, in a sense, hits the reset button on the universe, and everything is restored to how he designed it to be. And specifically, this great jubilee, Isaiah said, was to begin with God sending the Messiah to act as a spirit-anointed prophet to declare it's all happening, starting now, which you think would think would have made the people listening to Jesus go almost crazy, no question, because this would have been one of everybody's favorite passages, obviously. But interestingly enough, probably because it was one of their favorites, they had certain expectations as it was read, because they had an idea of what they already thought it meant. And to get a, a feel for that, the Bible's really amazing if you pay attention, if we really work at it. To get a, get a feel for that, it probably helps to read the, the full thing because Jesus didn't. He didn't read the full thing. He, the, the Spirit of the Lord is, a, is upon me. That's how it starts in Isaiah 61. And I'll read the whole passage because I think it helps you see what the people listening were expecting Jesus to say. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is where Jesus stopped. But the passage doesn't. The very next sentence is, and the day of ven the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. And I don't want to lose you now because we're getting to the part Jewish people there in Nazareth would have really liked. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations. And in their glory you shall boast. And, and I mean the reason I read all of that is because you can just imagine what this passage would have meant to the people there in Nazareth. Because these were Jewish people living in the, in the middle of all these Gentiles. And the reason they even started their town was to get the country back to being Jewish. And you can 
put yourself there in their shoes. You're, you're in the synagogue and you're reading this promise that's gonna happen, that the Gentiles you're meeting every day and seeing all around you are actually gonna end up being your servants and their wealth is gonna to come to you. And so you're gonna be able to devote yourselves and entirely to, to serving God. This was a passage you can see would be a preacher's favorite there in Nazareth. It's like, read it again, read it again. This would have made everyone's heart beat faster. And you can imagine the amens starting when someone read this out loud because it's like Isaiah's promising a golden age for them. In fact, they feel like Isaiah is saying with the coming of the anointed one of God, all the hard work they needed to be done would be done by foreigners and they would become wealthy as a result. And in case you need a little more proof, that's how they would have heard it. There's actually a translation of Isaiah in Aramaic Remember, the Bible was written in Hebrew, but many of the Jewish people at this time spoke Aramaic. And listen to how the passage goes in Aramaic. The Aramaic version reads, you shall eat the possession of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall be indulged. Instead of your being ashamed and confounded, two for one benefits, I promise you, I will bring to you. And the Gentiles will be ashamed who were boasting in your lot which gives you an idea of how people were thinking about all this. That, that's the point. When they read this, they were thinking about Israel being glorified at the expense of people who weren't Jewish, which I bring up because it's, it makes what Jesus actually does and says here so shocking. You've got to see this. This is revolutionary because here Jesus is the local boy looking like a hero at this point. And he's come back to town as, as a famous traveling teacher and he's being given his chance to have his say and he's getting quite a reputation. And so everyone's excited. And then especially when he opens up to Isaiah 61, which would have made every Jewish person there, you know, just thrilled because this was their money passage. They loved it. He's gonna talk about what God was gonna do for them. And yet with everyone listening closely, Jesus stops reading at the very point where Isaiah pronounces judgment on the Gentiles, who were the people their forefathers had moved to Nazareth to get rid of. They were wanting to make Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the Jews, and yet Jesus stops and he doesn't even quote the verses they would have thought would have been most important to that point. And what's more, when we look closely at the portion he reads next week, we'll notice he actually edits it a bit, meaning there are parts he left off and there's another verse from another passage in Isaiah that he sticks in. And now we're, we're getting to it because remember the question, and maybe you've forgotten because of all the noise and we've been going so long, but we've been asking how was Jesus going to go about his ministry as the son of God? And we saw the first thing Luke brings up is preaching. And so we're looking at this sample of one of Jesus's sermons to understand what did he preach and, and why did he get crucified? And this is a perfect example because here are the last people you would ever think would get upset. This was his hometown and they end up wanting to kill him before he's even done his first sermon. And as we look at the text he chose, it seems like it would have started off well because he chose a text that everyone there would have loved. And yet we're already getting hints from where he stops and the fact that he edits it a bit, that he's going a different direction with it than they were expecting. And so, you know, like I said, we're gonna look at that a little more closely next week and see what it was that made Jesus's message so revolutionary. You're gonna to have to come next week, but one thing at least you should see is that Jesus preached a very Jesus-centered message. If you're gonna understand how the Son of God is accomplishing salvation, you have to listen to Jesus preaching. 
And when you do, it's revolutionary because he didn't come into town just handing out rules or advice. That wouldn't have upset anyone. Instead, what got people so upset about Jesus' message were the claims he made about himself. Jesus is preaching exalted Jesus. Like here, it actually seems like a pretty short sermon if you look down at verse 21, and maybe there was more to it, and this is all Luke records because it gets to the heart of it, but after reading the scriptures, what does Luke tell us Jesus said? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, which is is not surprising to us, but it would have been totally surprising to the people listening to him that day in Nazareth, because while they were used to religious teachers and Pharisees coming there and telling them what to do and how to be better, Jesus's message was more radical than that. Here, he's talking about the salvation only God can provide, and he's talking about this great event where God would turn everything upside down and begin this great process of reversing the curse, and he's standing there saying without blinking, that's me. I am the fulfillment of that. This text that you've been reading all your lives about this prophet, this Messiah that God promised and that you've been longing to see, it's me. I am the one God has anointed to announce this great year of Jubilee. That's why he says today, he's pointing to what takes place in his life and his ministry and saying this is the moment that changes everything. It's happening through me right now. Jesus is the one God sent and set apart to accomplish the salvation that he promised all throughout the Old Testament, which is what made Jesus' radical because Jesus didn't just expound a text of Scripture like I'm doing. He claimed to be the fulfillment of Scripture. He made huge claims about himself. And yet again, maybe you're saying, yeah, I hear that. That's, what, that's, that's how you started. I mean, that's how you started this message. That's like what you said. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero. You keep saying that. But how do I know that? How do I know that? Because the way Jesus is fulfilling those promises seems so different than what I was expecting. And this is the third observation. Obviously, you can't listen to the devil's interpretation of what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. You have to listen to Jesus if you're going to understand what God's doing. And when you do, you'll find his message is revolutionary, but you should trust him. Why? Why? This is the third observation, and this is the one that I've been waiting this whole sermon to get to, so I'm glad it's a little quieter. This is, like, seriously mind-blowing. It's so cool. But to see it, you have to look at the whole chapter. So I'm not going to say it real simply. Instead, I want you to see it first. Because what's happening in Luke 14... To 44 is we get three scenes. We get three separate scenes that all kind of go together. Stick with me. We, we kind of surface scan one, Jesus preaching or at Nazareth, Jesus rejected at Nazareth, but there are two more, two more stories. And one way you can know they go together, this is little helps in reading your Bible as well, is because there's an introduction in verses 14 and 15, and then there's a, a, a conclusion in verse 44 that says almost the same thing, not quite the same thing, but almost. And so like in a sermon, you know how there's an introduction and conclusion, and they usually have ideas in common, and when the preacher finally gets to the conclusion, he starts saying kind of what he said at the beginning, you're like, oh, we're almost done. That's how it often works in a narrative as well. That's what you look for. And the introduction and conclusion here tell us that we've got three stories that seem a little different, but they're going to have a somewhat similar theme. And one, oh, this is going to be fun. One of the things that's really interesting about these stories 
verses 14 to 30, verses 31 to 37, and then verses 38 to 44, the three stories. One of the things that's really interesting about these three stories that will help you understand the theme is that kind of point for point, listen to me now, they correspond back to the devil's temptations. So, for example, the last temptation of the devil in Luke was what? Verses 9 through 11. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So the devil takes, what happens? The devil takes Jesus somewhere high, and he says, You are the Son of God. And he tells him to throw himself off this high place because God promises to take care of him as a proof. I think that he is the son of God. And Jesus says, no, that's, that's testing God. And then what happens in verses 14 to 40? Do you remember from when we read it at the beginning? If you go to the end of the story, you've got people asking what? What do they ask? Is this not the son of Joseph? So the devil said, you are the son of God. And they ask, isn't this the son of Joseph? And then they rise up and they bring Jesus to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. This is verse 29. They take Jesus somewhere so they could throw him off a cliff. And it's kind of understated here, but what's happening actually is like a miracle because here Jesus is in the middle of this mob that wants to kill him and has the power. They take him to the cliffs, so they must have hold of him. And yet somehow he just passes through the middle of them and goes away. That's the first story. And the second story is verses 31 to 37, and this is Jesus preaching again, and there's a demon who's interrupting him. And you remember the second temptation uh, back in the beginning of the chapter where Satan acts like he has all kinds of authority, and he comes to Jesus, and he's like, I have all the authority. I can give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just worship me. But Jesus says, no, he's supposed to worship God alone. And what happens in this second story is that a demon sees Jesus as he's preaching and he cries out, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebukes him and says, be silent, come out of him. And the demons listen and people are amazed. And what do they start talking about? Do you remember what they say? They talk about Jesus's authority, verse 38. For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And we're going to look at this more closely, but I'm just saying it's like point for point parallel with the temptations. And then the first temptation was for Jesus to command the stone to become bread. In other words, for Jesus to demonstrate that he was the son of God by performing miracles with his words. And what happens in the last story, verses 38 and 39, Luke chapter 4, is that Simon's mother-in-law is, is sick. And Luke says, Jesus stood over here, her and spoke. He rebuked the fever. And what happened? Do you remember? It listened. It left her, and she rose and began to serve him. In other words, he spoke, and miracles happened. And to top it all off, Luke tells us about some more of these miracles, and the demons are there, and what do they say in response to what Jesus is doing? Verse 41. They say, you are the Son of God. That's like their conclusion. The Bible is amazing, isn't it? Do you see it? It's exciting because it's not just a list of rules about how to live a good life. It's so much bigger. It reveals this plan that, that God is accomplishing to solve all the problems in the universe through Jesus. That's how Luke begins his gospel. But why should you trust that Jesus is able to do that when he's going to suffer and be crucified? It's not going the way we think. Luke says, to understand that, you need to listen to Jesus. But be ready because when you do, his message is 
revolutionary, and as a result, he's rejected and he suffers, and yet as he goes about fulfilling his mission by being rejected, by being hated, and by suffering, what happens? What happens is that he does the very signs the devil says would prove he's the son of God. Do you get it? Do you see it? This is how you can trust Jesus. It's like the chapter begins with the devil looking at Jesus suffering and saying, ah, if you're the son of God, you would do this. And the chapter ends with the devil's own followers looking at Jesus and what he's doing and saying, you are the son of God. This proves you're the son of God. And so it's like Jesus uses the devil's own proof against him. The devil says, if you're the Messiah, throw yourself off the temple and God's angels will protect you. And his point is, don't suffer. Don't suffer. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to trust God's will. And I'm going to accomplish salvation the way he's planned for me to. And you say, what's a sign that I should listen to his message? The devil gave it. The devil gave it. As Jesus submits to God's will and follows God's plan, what happens? God supernaturally protects him so that he can accomplish our salvation. Which means as we get to the end of this gospel and watch him suffer, we know this is not an accident. It is part of the plan, just like Jesus said. He was delivered up to die according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God in order to provide the solution to our most fundamental problems, the problems underneath every other problem, sin and death. And we know the rest of the story, how he's been raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God, and he's poured out his spirit on us so that we can understand what he accomplished. And and we know that he will come again to finish what he started. And I guess, church, what I'm calling on you to do today is believe it. You need a hero. We need a hero. Jesus is that hero. Let him interpret scripture for you not what you see with your eyes. Let him interpret what God is doing in this world for you. And listen as he does. Listen closely as he explains. Because he may not be accomplishing salvation the way you expected, but he has clearly proven that he is the son of God. Let's pray. Lord, this was a little bit harder one today. Um, But we thank you that you have poured out the Spirit. This is one of the proofs that you are the Messiah. We have the Spirit of God. And so even as we study your word with all the distractions and all the the, the difficult things that come, uh, we, we know your Spirit can take your word and you will speak to those of us who are real Christians and show us Jesus. So we pray that you'll continue to preach even after we leave here today and you'll continue to preach this text to us so that we might have more and more confidence that Jesus, you are the hero we so desperately long for. That God, you do have a plan. That plan does center on Jesus. It's happening, it's happening, it's happening. And uh, Lord, that we would be motivated to go out and tell the world uh, there is hope. We pray this in your name, amen.